The fall is here, and the Lean Out podcast is back. Renewed, refreshed, and ready to dive into the debates of the day. There's no better way to kick off the season than with our brilliant guest today, who is ringing the alarm on pessimism about the West. He grew up in the Soviet Union under communism and moved to the UK in his youth, forging successful careers as a translator, a comedian, a political commentator, and most recently, a podcaster. That is the beauty of the West. So if people are going to try and tell me that this is bad and somehow wrong and evil, well, I've actually got something to compare it to, thank you very much. And, and I'd quite like to, to not destroy what we have here for the sake of trying to get to some sort of utopia. Konstantin Kissin is co-host of the Trigonometry Podcast. His new book, is an immigrant's love letter to the West. Konstantin Kissin is my guest for the first fall episode of Lean Out. Konstantin, welcome to Lean Out. Thanks for having me. It's uh, wonderful to have you on. As you know, I'm a big fan of trigonometry and it's uh, just really great to get to speak with you today. I'm really looking forward to it as well. And uh, as I mentioned, if there's a little bit of noise, which there probably will be, I apologize. All my neighbors have decided to cut their grass, their trees, the, the rebuild their houses, whatever today. So it's it's a bit crazy. <laughs> no problem. I'm excited to to speak with you about your book, which which I loved and which I learned a lot from. I found it really, really interesting. So let's start here. So you're you're from the Soviet Union. Your early years growing up were under communism. As you point out in the book, your homeland achieved many of the goals of the contemporary left. Set this up for us. What was that utopia like and how did that experience influence how you now view this woke left? Well, the the Soviet Union was brilliant at creating free healthcare, free education. In fact, as I talk about in the book, you were paid to study uh, at university in the Soviet Union and given all sorts of opportunities. Uh, inequality of wealth and also of income was very, very low compared to capitalist countries like the ones that we live in. Um, so in many ways, it was this uh, brilliant, beautiful utopia that we're all striving for today. Uh, of course, what uh, even uh, something like women's equality, for example, was extraordinarily advanced, in, particularly in the early Soviet Union, uh, you know, in terms of uh, legalizing abortion, you know, for, the goal was supposed to be freeing, um, I think the quote was freeing women, women from the bondage of family and children or something like that. Uh, so they, they, they were making quite a lot of progress towards that initially, at least until they realized you kind of need people to have children to, to have a population. Um, but in terms of the, you know, the other stuff, uh, you know, wealth and income inequality was very low, but the, the way it was achieved is by making everybody poor uh, because the system was extraordinarily inefficient. Uh, healthcare, yes, everybody had access to it theoretically, but if you wanted to actually be treated by somebody who knew what they were doing, you needed to have some sort of bribe or connection or family link. That, that tended to be how it worked. Um, education. Similar, you, you know, you had to you had to know people to get into the right universities. And even when you did, uh, sure, you've got your education for free. And by the way, education in the Soviet Union was genuinely very, very good, uh, a, a lot better than in Russia today, a lot better than in many Western countries today, I would argue, certainly in terms of the academic side of things. Uh, but uh, the price for that was you didn't really have much choice about your career. You were 
told where you would go and you had to follow that profession um so uh, it was a very restrictive system uh people who wanted to to have a you know creative job like being a writer or an author or a musician or a, a comedian god forbid uh all of these positions to the extent that they existed com comedians didn't really exist but everybody else you were not really uh free to pursue that on your own skills and talents and merits you 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 it was an appointed position you had to be appointed author or appointed a musician you had to go through the, the official system so it was a society that was extraordinarily restrictive uh in order to enable this beautiful utopia that we we all strive for today mm. you also tell the story in the book of your grandfather a physicist uh tell our listeners what happened to him so in the late soviet union when i was already alive uh in the early 80s my grandfather uh criticized he he uh, he stepped on a landmine as many people do nowadays and, and and he said that the soviet invasion of afghanistan in 1979 uh, was wrong and he didn't actually say it in public he didn't tweet about it or anything like that he said it in a private conversation and one of his supposed friends who was there reported him to the authorities and uh, he had the KGB search his house he was fired from his job his wife was fired from her job uh, and both his children including my father they were kicked out of university so my father's education was essentially ruined because his father had said the wrong thing in the wrong place um and he was essentially forced out of of the soviet union and ended up coming to the uk which is how eventually and you know when my parents had some money and they wanted to send me to study abroad they were like okay your grandfather's in the uk we'll send you there so that's how i ended up uh, being in the west and being in the uk because my grandfather was essentially exiled from the soviet union for saying the wrong thing mm. And you you say at one point in the book you were warned as a child to not speak about the things you heard inside the house outside of the house and that your parents were not being paranoid in any way they were just being prudent hmm. when you think about that kind of stifling atmosphere and then you compare that to the atmosphere that we are in right now in the west uh, what parallels do you see well, it's why I wrote the book. I think we're we're heading in that direction now. Obviously, you know, people people start freaking out and go, "Are you saying we've got gulags now?" No, I'm I'm not saying we've got gulags now. I'm not even saying, you know, I don't trust the the progressives to be able to run a gulag efficiently. I just I, what I'm saying is we are heading in a direction in which we are increasingly censoring ourselves first and foremost uh you know when people talk about you know i come from a comedy background people talk about well you know where are all these comedians getting censored well first of all they are they're getting cancelled all the time we've got a story right as we're recording this in the uk with a comedian whose show has been cancelled but much more importantly and this is a point that lionel shriver uh made the, the brilliant author um when she was on trigonometry herself and she said we don't even know which books aren't being written and uh in in the wake of the awful uh attempt uh to to murder salman rushdie uh this is kind of the, the point that i think she was making which is nothing like the satanic verses would be written today let alone published 
And that's because we've accepted this idea that people should be restricted in, in what they say and what they think and what they express in public uh, for the benefit of, you know, whatever the, the goal is, is, whether that's protecting people from hurting their feelings or blasphemy or, or whatever other restrictions we've agreed to implement on ourselves. We now live in a society in which increasingly people are worried about saying what they think. And the stats bear this out, you know, one of in the preface to uh, to an immigrant's love letter to the West, I give the statistics. Uh, I think it's like 77% of Republicans, nearly 60% of independents, and over half of moderates in the United States are fearful of expressing their political opinions outside of their home. In the UK, the situation is similar, and particularly the trend is very dangerous in that more and more people feel more and more restricted. Uh, and fewer and fewer people feel that they can speak their mind. So we absolutely are moving in a direction where we are we are censoring each other and ourselves. And I, that worries me a lot. Mm. Yeah, that's certainly something I experienced a lot in, in the newsroom and mm. uh, is very, very worrying trend. So how, um, how, how did that manifest in the newsroom for you? I, I found that there was a lot of fear of cancel culture for one and that you know it doesn't exist though tara (laughs) (laughs) thank you for pointing that out (laughs) oh and that you know there was a a fear of you know expressing certain viewpoints in story meetings there was certainly a fear of booking certain guests and that even people who you know might subscribe to seven out of ten of the woke talking points would feel that fear Mm. It's it's not just people who are contrarians like me. Yes. Now I wonder. Um, getting back to the book, you 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 champion the West in this book, and indeed you and and your Ukrainian wife, you have chosen to remain in the West and raise your your baby son here. Um, but a lot of people do not share that optimism, and I'm really curious, like where how do you think we got to this point in the West where so many people are so pessimistic about what it is that we have? Well, I think the different groups, right? There are people who are, uh, who hate the West because that's how they've been brought up. Um, and there are also people now increasingly, I think particularly on the right, who are disillusioned uh, with the direction of travel of the West. I would say that particularly on the first the first group who are the majority of the people I think who, who hate the West, um, they were victims of our own success. They have nothing to compare. They're very comfortable, very safe, very stable. They're very predictable lives too. Uh, they're also experiencing, you know, this is one of the things, as you know, we've explored quite a bit on trigonometry. We interviewed a very interesting woman uh, called Mary Eberstadt, who is the author of a book called Primal Screams, in which she talks about how the sexual revolution uh, gave us identity politics. And her argument is that uh, the sexual revolution, which I actually think, you know, people like to go on about how this is feminists who created this. I'm not sure it was. I think it was more technological shifts that enabled some of these things to be uh, formalized then by the feminist movement. And some of them were very necessary, by the way. But but essentially her, her contention is that the, the sexual revolution gives us the breakdown of the family. 
and you've got people not staying together with their children. Uh, there's a lot of fathers who are not around to raise their kids. And then you have generations of people who grow up in essentially what in the past we would have politically incorrectly described as broken homes, uh, which leaves people with a lot of anxiety, a lack of meaning. Uh, the, the Their childhoods are not as happy as they might have been otherwise, et cetera. And so they they are living in one of the most comfortable, one of the most privileged societies in the history of the world. And yet they feel this deep angst and, and frustration at the way that they experience life. And you add to that, that, you know, there are some economic difficulties that particularly younger people face in terms of the UK. You know, we've got a big housing crisis, which means that people who are younger are not able to buy a property, start a family, and all of these things get delayed. So while we are extraordinarily fortunate, people's subjective experience is one of, you know, difficulties, frustration, angst, anger, dissatisfaction. Sometimes they don't even necessarily know where it's all coming from. And I think if you put that together, that heady mix is, is how you get the position that we're now in, where a lot of people are very, very uh, dissatisfied because first and foremost, they don't appreciate what they have because they have nothing to compare it to. And also they're dissatisfied because objectively speaking, their, their experience of life is quite difficult. Mm, it's such a good point. We have a, a very massive housing crisis here as well. I wonder, I mean, I come from the left. I grew up in very progressive circles. It feels to me like this kind of just snuck up on us in some ways. I mean, mm. I, I, of course, you had that experience in 2018 where you refused to sign that behavioral agreement for a comedy gig with a student group that stipulated you had to refrain from any jokes that were sexist, racist, classist, ageist, homophobic, xenophobic, anti-religion, anti-atheist, and commit to being respectful and kind in every way. Mm. When, you, when you look at the progression of this ideology and the extremity of it, where do you see the tipping point? When do you think this just exploded? I think it exploded with the emergence of social media, because one of the incredibly powerful elements of this ideology is it sounds so good, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Mm. You know, everybody looked after, no one left behind, everybody equal is brilliant. And so if you have a system uh, like social media, Twitter, Facebook in particular, uh, where it's all about showcasing to other people how brilliant your opinions are, um, then that will be something that accelerates that process because uh, the truth is often painful. It's uncomfortable. The truth is we're not all born equal. Some of us are born smart and some of us are not. Some of us are born talented in other ways and some of us are not. Some some of us uh, are unable to fulfill on their talents and potential because of the childhood that they had and others aren't. You know, But if you have an ideology that condenses all that into very simplistic tribal signaling, you know, white people this, black people that, men this, women that, you know, straight people this, you know, the alphabet, whatever that, then you end up in a position where um, there are certain luxury beliefs, as Rob Henderson, who we've had on the show, calls them, that get propagated, even though they're completely incorrect and actually counterproductive to the very people that they claim to be supporting. I mean, you know, the, the defund the police sloganeering that we saw in, in the summer of 2020 is a very good example of this, because well, what happens when you defund the police? Well, the police are disproportionately policing minority neighborhoods in the United States and actually in the UK as well, because that's tend to be tends to be where the poorer people live. That means there's more crime there and the police are there. So if, when you pull the police out, 
the people who get hurt are the very people you supposedly protect whose lives supposedly matter to the people who chant all this rubbish. But actually, they are the ones that end up being hurt because these ideas get implemented. And we've seen this across a swathe of cities in America where these stupid slogans got taken seriously. Police either got defunded or demoralized and pull out of the service and you can't recruit new police officers. What happens? More black people and brown people get killed. More, more of them get burglarized. More of them get assaulted. So I think it explodes with, with the the propagation of this sort of virtue signaling platforms that we now use for a lot of our communication. And you see this, it bears out. It's not just a theory that I have. It bears out in the numbers, the, the number of mentions. I'm sure you'll, you'll be across this of, you know, all these buzzwords like privilege, you mm. know, whiteness, all of this stuff spike in, in the early tens, uh, because that is around the time when social media is taking off. Uh, and we've and we sort of have a society which which just reelected Barack Obama in the United States, and at the same time, you know, this 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 idea that it's the most racist place in the world is is happening at once with that. Now that doesn't make a lot of sense unless you consider the fact that these ideas sound really really good and make you look good, and you can get the dopamine hits of the likes, the shares, the retweets, and whatever by posting all the stuff by looking good, uh, and of course. Other point, we, we're just about to release uh, later today our interview with Sam Harris, uh, in which he makes a very good point, which is a lot of people, most of us really, I think, um, and probably until I started doing trigonometry, which gives me meaning not only in terms of the conversations that we're having, but also in terms of you know managing a small business with a bunch of people who work for us now and running that and looking after everybody, making sure that people are getting what they need and growing as, as much as they want to and whatever. That gives me a lot of meaning and fulfillment. But most of us really on a day-to-day basis, we don't have a lot of meaning in our lives and attaching ourselves publicly to a good quote unquote cause gives a lot of people meaning that they otherwise don't have so uh, some of these movements they they have a religious religious like quality particularly in, in a society that is as fragmented uh as atomized as non-religious as ours we are going to look for uh structures and systems and communities that give us meaning and belonging uh, and social justice and wokeness and all of these things, they give us a very, very easy way of getting the simulacra of those things like meaning and community that human beings will always crave. It's mm, such a good point. And in sort of going back to how these ideas have spread, I mean, this mm. couldn't have happened without the amplification of the media. And uh, I you know, I've been a journalist 20 years. At some point in story meetings, you started to see people pitching mm. off Twitter and mm. sometimes exclusively pitching off Twitter. And you have a really amazing piece about how people have lost faith in the media. It started out as this, let me help you understand thread, mm. then published in tablet. I know a version of it is in the book. You talk about things like the media's mishandling of things like the Trump election and Brexit, and, and even recently the lab leak and the pandemic. When you look at those stories um, that you list in that, in that thread and piece, what do you think has had the biggest impact on your faith in the media? 
That's a really interesting question. It's you know the way I summarize that that piece is is kind of the boy who cried Russia or the boy who cried you know whatever. Uh, for me, I think for me personally, and I know that for Francis it was very similar. My trigonometry co-host Francis Foster, it was around Brexit, which was obviously a, you know you could argue it was a local UK and European issue. Although I I, I doubt that. I, I feel that it was part of a broader. A uh, swathe of movements that were affecting many countries, including Trump, obviously. Um, it was when, you know, I'm a first generation dark skinned uh, immigrant to the UK. I've lived in this country for a long time. I've I've had, you know, people make racist comments to me and I've had people be, you know, prejudiced or whatever. But it was this when when people started saying, you know, well, the reason people voted for Brexit was because they were all racist or that this was a major motivating factor. I was like, even as someone who voted Remain in that referendum and was quite skeptical about the decision to leave at that time, I've, you know, my thinking has evolved. I was just like, nah, nah, I, I, I'm not, no, that's not my experience of this country. That's not my experience. It's not the experience of, of my other minority friends in this country is, is if you're trying to tell me this is a you know half the people of britain are these massive racists no no that's not true that is absolutely not true and it was from there that i sort of began to look at these things with a bit of more of a critical eye and once you you know once you go through the through that looking glass you, you start to see all sorts of other areas where it's happening. And by the way, it's easy to get carried away and that people do get carried away with that and, and sort of go, well, if the mainstream media is saying this, it must be wrong. Well, not always. Sometimes the main, you know, there's a, too, a few too many people for my liking. So if the media reported that gravity still exists, they'd jump out of a window to to make sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm not one of them. Uh, I, th I think you've got to think for yourself, but I do think for a lot of people, myself included, 2016 onwards, was around the time 2015 2016 when a lot of these sort of very obviously false explanations started to be offered for why things were happening in society um and that is what uh, you know the term is red pill that 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 it's it's quite a big red pill to see the, the country that you love that you're grateful to live in that that's given you a home and in which you are you know genuinely able to to do something um you know, just do whatever you want. I mean, look at me. I'm a, uh, like I say, first generation immigrant came here. I, I Yes, I, I went to a good school because my parents had a bit of money for a short period of time. Uh, but, you know, I by the time I was 18, I was sleeping in a park in Edinburgh because I couldn't afford to rent a property. I didn't have enough money for, for several weeks and I had to just make do. Uh, my wife came here with nothing. We were both first generation immigrants. We, we had to apply for all sorts of visas and, you know, all of that. That's how we spent our early 20s when most of our fellow, you know, youngsters were building their careers and whatever. And yet here I am. I run a very successful YouTube channel. Uh, I had a great comedy career and, you know, TV and political commentary career before that. That is the beauty of the West. So if people are going to try and tell me that this is bad and somehow wrong and evil, well, I've actually got something to compare it to. Thank you very much. And, and I'd quite like to, to not destroy what we have here for the sake of trying to get to some sort of utopia. So that was my, um, 
Well, that's very much my journey and my objection to all of this is these people are trying to destroy one of the best societies in the history of the world and i'm not going to stand for it mm. i want to spend a moment on comedy um i i love comedy it's been one of the big kind of heartbreaks for me over the last few years and in fact was pivotal in my decision to leaving the cbc our coverage of the dave Chappelle uh controversy was uh just mind-boggling to me there was here's one of the most famous most beloved comedians in the world and we only had you know in our big pop culture radio show only had people speaking against and how harmful he was as opposed to anyone representing comedians who loved his work fans who loved his work um i'm wondering if you can walk people through what has happened in the british comedy culture and is this puritism top down bottom up or both Hmm. Uh, so it's both. Uh, and what's happened is that you've got to understand that uh, I don't know what it's like over there, but in the UK, the comedy scene is a very small, it's a very small industry. You know, the, the, the people who control, let's say, you know, the key entry doorways into different things is like 10, 15, 20 of these people. That's it. Right. And in 2018, I've written a Substack about this recently uh, in 2018, uh, a woman called Nika Burns, uh, who is the director of the Edinburgh Festival uh, Awards. The Edinburgh Festival is the biggest comedy festival in the world. Uh, it is literally the only path to success, or it has been until the internet, basically, to success in the comedy industry in this country. You have to go to the Edinburgh Festival. You have to do a bunch of one-hour shows there as a comedian and hope that eventually you're going to get spotted by somebody and pushed to wherever it is that you think you, you want to go. Um, she said in 2018, in the launch, uh, in the in the, at, at the event to launch the festival, to all the quote unquote shakers and movers who were there, the people who run the whole industry, she said that she looked forward to the new woke era of comedy in which uh, woke comedians are deciding what isn't isn't acceptable. So that is obviously something that's happening top down but actually i think it was a response to the things that were happening from the bottom up as well and so that you've got the symbiosis of people who are not particularly funny but have all the right opinions coming through and they are being plucked from above and so you've got the two things coming together uh, and that is why you know we've seen the, the most popular shows on british television uh, comedically were mock the week i mean 10 10 years ago every single comedian would have run over their own grandmother but with her own wheelchair just to get on that program right <laughs> nowadays I mean, the program's canceled because the numbers have gone down so much. Uh, but even, you know, well, I remember we interviewed a comedian who, who doesn't agree with us about this stuff, by the way. But he was saying, you know, I would rather uh, I would rather, you know, have 40,000 YouTube subscribers than go on this program. Whereas 10 years ago, going on Mock the Week would have made your career. Right. So they destroyed the show from the inside. Uh, another program, Mash, The Mash Report, which was a very big show here in the UK. It was around for a few years. Uh, it was widely perceived as being unfunny and lecturing and moral hectoring. Again, cancelled. And uh, there's a couple more. They're going to get cancelled very soon as well or not renewed, rather, I should say. 
so they've they 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 strangled the golden goose that kept the entire industry afloat. Uh, they're going to and look, I I have very little stake in it. I, I don't need these people. I don't really particularly care about these people. Uh, but as someone who who has an understanding of the comedy industry in this country, who has a bit of a voice, I'm just I'd quite like my former colleagues not to not to continue to be abused by this industry. Uh, and that's the only reason I, I say anything about it. But yeah, I, look, uh, comedy will always thrive. I think it will go on the internet increasingly. That's where you're going to find it, provided we don't all get banned from it. Um, but um, in terms of the the live stuff, the comedy scene, the comedy industry, it has become very restrictive. And not least because, by the way, we have laws on the books now that say, you know, we have laws of being, against being offensive. Uh, we've had comedians prosecuted for making jokes, uh, whether that's on the internet or elsewhere. We've had uh, we had a very mainstream comedian uh, called Joe Lysett recently. He he had a joke that was reported to the police by one of his audience members, and the police uh, came and investigated to make sure his joke was okay. So, I mean, what 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 do you think is going to happen in that sort of climate? Do you think people are going to going to be out there, you know, challenging and pushing the boundaries? I, I don't really think so. Um, However, as I say, I am hopeful because we've got Comedy Unleashed, which is uh, a comedy uh, club that's run by Andrew Doyle, a, a good friend of mine. And, uh, you know, we see a lot of pushback against the stuff on the Internet. So, you know, I am hopeful that eventually this thing will balance itself out. Uh, but I do think the mainstream comedy industry will be destroyed in the process. And I'm all here for it. Mm. Hey, Andrew Doyle, uh, I'm a big fan of as well, and mm. he's been on this podcast. Um, you, in this last uh, couple of days, there's been this controversy over Jerry Sadowitz, and you wrote about this on Substack. You went on BBC Scotland uh, to talk about this very funny moment there. But as as you pointed out, um, a lot of the critics of all of this are kind of being a bit mind readers. They're imputing motives to people in the audience that we can't possibly know. Um, why do you think it's so important to defend comics like Sadowitz? Well, the reason I defend Jerry Sadowitz is I am a huge fan of his, so I am familiar with his work. This is one of the problems that we've now got ourselves into, where uh, even people who who agree with me and like my commentary on this issue were like, well, I'd like to see what he said uh, before I make up my mind about this. And the problem is you can't. You can't see what Jerry Sadowitz said unless you went to his show. Because even if you take the words of his joke and write them down and read them on a screen, that is not the same as the joke that he told in the show, because the context of the joke is the entire show. That's the context, right? And you can't understand jokes without the context. And the thing about Jerry Sadowitz is he's an incredibly uh, clever satirist. Um, and you And he takes you into the sort of magical, horrific world of his own mind when you're in his show for an hour, in which he he's absolutely a hateful character, bile-filled character on stage. But the thing that you get very strongly is the bile is directed inward. And this is someone who's dealing with his own demons, at least the character is, on stage. And therefore, he, I mean, if you write his material down and put it on the breakfast show at seven in the morning, of course, it's going to sound racist and sexist and and, and whatever it is. But you've got to understand that everything has a context. And Jerry Sadowitz, I would recommend anyone in the UK or wherever he travels to who has an opportunity to go and see him, go and see him in person because there will not be a comedian like him, I don't think, in our lifetimes again. Um, and so I defend him because I know his work. 
I know that he. this isn't some guy who's just there doing jokes about minorities because that's the easy laugh. Uh, and the other point that you make is, is also true, which is I am getting very tired, Tara, of people who don't seem to understand irony. And if they are that stupid that they don't, that's absolutely fine. But they should let those of us who have an IQ above a carrot, you know, to actually <laughs> enjoy this, to enjoy people being sarcastic and ironic. You know, that is what that's what I like. And if you don't like it, don't go to see the show. But I would still like the opportunity to do that. And this is the problem with all of this ideology. The, the main problem that I have, you know, people are allowed to have any opinion that they want. And if you think that Jerry Sadowitz is a terrible, you know, racist and whatever, fine, have that opinion. You haven't seen the show, you're allowed to, but don't prevent other people who've paid to, for tickets. You know, he, 300 people kept wanted to see his show and, and someone, one person or two people who complained got it canceled. Don't prevent other people from seeing comedy that they like. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Uh, let's close on this. Uh, Constantin, I've, I've been thinking about trigonometry. Four years ago, you started this. You mm. and Francis have just returned from this kind of whirlwind tour of the US. You went on Joe Rogan. As you say, you got to speak to Sam Harris, Bill Burr, and you described kind of a moment of like this out-of-body experience during that tour. Uh, what do you think, when you look at the success of trigonometry, what do you think that says about what the public wants and needs right now? Uh, it's very, very easy, uh, Tara. When we were starting out, I, uh, when we wanted to do the show, I looked around and I went, who is doing things that I like and respect? And there were a couple of people, not least of them, Joe himself, uh, who were doing it. And I looked at what he was doing. And obviously, look, being first is always going to be helpful in anything. And he was, you know, he started a long time ago. It takes time to take, get anything off the ground. But when I look at Joe, I think, He's funny. He's a very funny guy. Uh, he's a smart guy. He He's a great listener, all of these things. But I don't really think that it is those things alone that make a success. From what I've observed and what I always say is authenticity is the currency of the internet. Uh, the reason people are moving away from all sorts of mainstream things, which is mainstream journalism, mainstream uh, comedy, mainstream anything is, you know, look at look at TV. Right. It's a bunch of people pretending to have opinions that they don't have. Right. Like when you watch TV, you, you know this from the inside. The people who are on the screen are not saying the things that they think when the cameras are switched on. Right. Is that fair to say? A lot of the time. Yeah. So and I'm not even saying that as a criticism. I'm just saying they don't they're not able because of the way the medium is to to say what they think in the way that they think it. Uh, and when the cameras switch off, that's when the interesting conversations happen, in my experience, because I've done a lot of TV and that's how it is. So it's a bunch of essentially fake people in a fake venue having a fake conversation. <laughs> that sounds great. That's what it is. That's what it is <laughs> right. And before we had the technology to do something else, that was quite powerful. People, you know, that was the first time people could see people on a screen having a conversation about politics or whatever it was. Well, guess what? Now, because of the rapid advances in technology where the barriers to entry are so low, you can start a podcast, you know, with a 500 bucks. Um, because of that, we are now in a position where you don't have to be 
fake. You don't have to have a huge budget. You can just go on the internet and be yourself. And so the one thing that Francis and I've always tried to cultivate, and look, it takes time because, you know, when we started out, the reason the show is called Trigonometry is that, it, you know, people think, oh, it's about triggering the libs. Actually, it was about signaling to the people who were watching that we are fair-minded people who are going to try and have difficult conversations about difficult subjects. And you may find this challenging. And you can't have a difficult conversation if you're not being honest. And it takes time to get to a place where you're comfortable having an honest conversation in public, because particularly if you're coming from the comedy industry, you know everyone's watching you, you're going to lose opportunities, whatever. So it took us a little while to find our feet in that. But I always believed that if we were if we were honest and open-minded and tried to speak to people who were saying things that were not being reflected in the, in the mainstream conversation, uh, there would be an audience for that. And I think, uh, you know, it's a bit weird to cut to to sort of publicly say that, Oh, you know, the reason we are successful is because we're so authentic, but we've tried to be that we've tried to be honest about what we think. And sometimes what we think changes. And sometimes Francis and I disagree with each other, you know, even in the context of our conversation with Joe on his show, there were times when I went, well, actually, I don't agree with this Francis and I explain why. And I think that's what people appreciate. They appreciate that we explore difficult things with interesting people in an honest way. And whether we're right or wrong, we're saying what we think because that's what we think. I think that's really, you know, when people sometimes ask me advice on how to do it, just I always, it's it's the crappy advice that everyone gets when they're, you know, trying to get into dating when they're 18, but you just got to be yourself. And in many ways, I think for most people, uh, being yourself in public is actually the hardest thing to do. Uh, I always think about charisma in this way, you know, you know, I'm someone who's done a lot of public speaking and I used to have a, a, like a big fear of speaking in public. And uh, that's why I wanted to do it. I wanted to overcome it and I wanted to grow in that area. And the thing that I realized is charisma really is just about being comfortable with yourself in front of a group of people. That's really all it is. Uh, and some people will have more charisma than others. Some people will have less. But people who are comfortable with themselves in public are the ones that draw uh, an audience. They are attractive to us to listen to. And you mentioned the clip that from the BBC Scotland thing. That's why, you know, I we, we put out these clips like every now and again. It's like Constantine Kissing destroys, you know, this or that with facts and logic. And the reason it's so easy is because I'm just saying what I think. I'm not strategizing or navigating. I just go, mm. wait, wait, this thing you just said, that's not actually true. Uh, <laughs> and and so it's I kind of feel bad for the people to, to whom it happens, really, because they're there trying to pretend that, whereas I'm just going, well, no, actually, this is what I think, you know. Uh, so that that's my feeling on it. I think um, the success of the Joe Rogan experience of trigonometry of a bunch of other shows is, you know, we, we try to be authentic about what we believe and, and try to bring people on who are likewise going to be honest about what they think. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really helped me a lot watching you and Francis. And so thank you for your show. Thank you for this excellent book. And uh, thank you for the conversation today. Tara, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. 